I think you and I have very, very different musical tastes. <laughs> one, one might say that. One might say that. One might, yeah, one might say that. I always listen to your, like when I see you're on, on Discord, it shows what you're playing on Spotify. And occasionally I'll just be like, oh, what's Sean listening to today? And and I'll follow along. And it's it just to me, it just sounds the same as all the other days, being perfectly honest. Yep. But it makes sense. That's okay. Predictable. That's how I like my applications to run. <laughs> Predictable. Predictably uh, slow? Predictably throwing errors? Yeah, I would rather it be predictably slow than <laughs> predictably broken. I don't know. So uh, the story arc of the show now is that I've been working on this feature for my entire life, right? Like the last three episodes or something. It's finally live. Launched it on Saturday. Woohoo! I was super scared, man. I... There's been only like a few times where I've deployed a change where my like my hands are sweating <laughs> and I can tell my heart rate is has increased and this was one of those times. Did you end up doing it like in the middle of the night on Saturday? It was on Saturday. It was just in the evening. Okay. Uh, I wasn't so worried about like West Coast traffic because I, w- I wasn't. <laughs> I was more so worried about like we have, we've had a lot of stores come on and so our inventory team is backed up right now. So they're just trying to play catch up and so... The last thing I wanted was if I'm doing it on um, Friday night or in the evenings, if they're working, I don't want to like, cause a problem for them. So they lose out on a full day's work because if, when I'm going to bed, they're they're getting up basically. Sure. And I know they answer to other people in our company. So I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't causing a problem there. So that was my main concern was just waiting to the weekend when everyone's not around and uh, just kind of making the change then. Just question in general, does your does the application, does the site actually have like a weekly uh trend in terms of traffic? Like are, are weekends more busy? Are they less busy? Do you know? Uh they're not any less busy, they're not any more busy. It's just interesting. Average all around. What's what is like it depends on when our newsletters go out. That's when we have the most traffic spikes. So like uh, okay. Thursday mornings is when we send the most email. Uh in general we have something that goes out almost every day. It's just a different thing. And it's like to different audiences. So the same audience doesn't get an email every single day because that'd be annoying. Uh, so we have like different types of audiences. And so like a Monday, one audience gets an email. On Tuesday, another section of the audience gets an email. On Thursday, another section of the audience gets an email. It just happens to be on Thursdays, it's the biggest the biggest section. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely done the late night deploys where I don't have any, most of our users are within the US or all of them are actually. Uh, so I don't have to worry so much about, you know, plus or minus 12 hours people using the thing. But like if I'm doing a, an update that requires me, sometimes I have to actually physically take down the site. Right. And because all of our HR is like WebSocket connections that are long lived, right? Like cause, doing a hard restart causes those connections to die. So and I don't want to interrupt people while they're using the site. So, yeah, occasionally in the past when it's been really busy, but I need to make an update, I'll set my alarm for like, 2.30 or 3 a.m. or something when it's like the minimum and get up bleary-eyed, hit deploy, pray to God nothing goes <laughs> wrong because then I'm staying up all night. Right. Uh, and then attempt to go back to sleep after, you know, being blinded by my by my screen. But have you, have you ever thought about like sending out a, hey, we have scheduled maintenance at this time, like scheduling a time and just saying it, let everyone know? It's so we have a, there's a, there's a status bar at the top of the, first of all, people don't read. I, <laughs> That's true. Blanket statement. People don't read. Yep. Um, I put a, there's like a bar at the top of the screen 
where in real time I can like publish a little notice to that and then it'll show up on everybody's client within like a minute or something, right? So I can I can publish a notice and say like, hey, we're going scheduled, scheduled downtime for whatever. And like the fact that it appears means nothing. Yeah. You know, people will people will just stay on. Like they'll stay connected. Basically, I don't want to interrupt people who are physically like having a conversation over the air, right? That's not a good experience. Mm-hmm. So I will publish that notification. What would be better would be like if I could like push like a pop-up to them that like makes a noise or something and forces them to take an action. You know what I mean? Because I think right now it's too passive in the sense that like you have to be looking for it and see it versus like pushing it in like, you know, the three people that are online, like, you know, the system's going down in five minutes. That's really what should happen. But yeah, yeah, I just don't have that right now. Yeah, it is true. People do not read at all. And, and so like up until this point, Design Collective has been kind of making things like a traditional SaaS offering. So we have ways that people can do things themselves. And in general, people don't do those things themselves. They message support <laughs> and ask us to do those things for them. Uh, and so, yeah, we have a team that helps them do that th- that stuff, which to me just blew my mind because I was like, it's, it's not that difficult. All the help documentation is here. We have support staff here to help you do stuff. They, the, our, our customers just don't want to do that. It's not just your customers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, they're busy. They have... You know, most store owners have like design businesses and um, they might like interior design. They might design their own furniture. You know what I mean? They might have multiple stores. So they're busy and I get that. So yeah, it's interesting. What's what's really crazy, I don't think I told you this, was that um, there's a convention called High Point. I think it's like four times a year. And our boss's company, Alder and Tweed, has a big showroom there. And so we obviously have reps that go for design collective and pitch pitch to store owners because that's it's like a big like industry trade show basically. And so traditionally, uh, my boss Lindsay will take an iPad, and if someone wants to sign up, she'll have an iPad or a computer, and someone can just fill out the form that way, and that works okay. But this year, um, our sales guy Scott made a paper form of our first step foot onboarding. It's literally almost, it was like a PDF that was printed out and changed a little bit. So it's just paper. And we got, this is this is by far our biggest month because of that, of new stores. Paper signups. Like three times, like no joke, three times as many on paper signed up. <laughs> so they actively opted to use a piece of paper over an iPad with a simple form where you just plug in some information and create an account, right? Hmm. Yeah. So that's very interesting. So we've been changing some small stuff here and there to kind of play into that because if it works better, why not? And if it's less work in terms of like trying to f- like ascertain data, like how do people do this and why do people not do this? If we know they use paper, let's just use paper. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was, I thought that was very interesting. So yeah, in general, people don't read and they don't pay attention to to details. And they don't really want to do things for themselves. They don't have to, I guess. That's, that's, that's correct. Yeah. Yep. It's a, uh, it's fun. It's fun. So I did launch that feature, right? So we have uh, companies now and stores can list multiple stores if they want. Great. And we have stores doing that. Already. And what they did was, yes. Yeah. So we have two companies. One has like four stores and the other has three stores. That's great. Did they previously only have one store on the platform and now they just have more? Like, is that what they did? Awesome. Yep. Uh, And so that was cool. They messaged support and uh, our guy, Scott, went and created the source for them. I guess. So I get it works, right? It works. If it works, that's the thing. Like, 
you have this idea of how your app's going to work and how people are going to use your app, but then reality settles in and you kind of have to figure out how do we, okay, how do we work with it? How do we work with what we have? So that's... You, you need to, uh, you know, some people have like test-driven development or behavior-driven driven development. You've got Scott-driven development. Yeah, and he does a great job. You just program for Scott so he can so he can support it for us. <laughs> yeah, he does a great job. I don't know if I could handle doing what he does. Um, he's much more, he's a better per- people person than I am and he does a good job at it. But it's just, yeah, it's just interesting. So I messaged him the other day and I was like, what of our setup can we make more low tech to make your life easier? And I never thought I would be asking my, like asking somebody that question at a software startup. How can we remove automation to make your life easier? Right? Because if people are asking him less questions for support, then he has to answer less support questions. Yeah. Yeah. It seems backwards, but it works somehow. It's working very well for us. So <laughs> yeah. And then at the end of the day, like our job is to solve problems for the store owners. And if that means going low, lower tech, I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, that's less for me to keep in mind and be aware of. So it's less, you know, it's just less stuff makes things lighter, which is, which is kind of cool. Oh yeah. I mean, we have, we have people who pay us by check, like their subscription fees or their, their monthly fees or whatever. They'll literally physically mail us a check. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's interesting, right? Okay. So, so I hang out on, on sites like Indie Hackers and they'll have long conversations about pricing. And you go to like a, a SaaS website and it'll say, here's price A, here is price B, here is price C. And that seems to work fine for them. But for us, it's like we have deals all over the place. One store might pay this amount, one store might pay that amount. If one store is having a rough month, we might give them a discount for that month. So it's like things aren't set in stone. And and so it's it's interesting. When I set out to like make these features, I mostly always approach them like things are set in stone, which is so dumb. Uh, and they never are. Uh, so yeah, so I launched this big feature. Um, it, it took a while just because like between like in the project life cycle, a few times I had to stop and work on something else, fix a bug, uh, help Paul with something, you know, finish out this other little feature quick. That's important. Um, and so I would always keep coming back to it. So it was kind of drawn out and yeah. So I was like, all right, you know, everyone, this is how it works. And everyone's like, sounds great. And I was like, okay, I'm going to play on Saturday. And everyone's like, sounds great. And on Monday, uh, my boss comes in and was like, oh, uh, I would like it to work like this and this. And I was like, that's not, that's not, that's different. It doesn't work <laughs> like that. Oh no. But it was fine. So we also had this really interesting talk. I thought it was really, I don't know, it was eye-opening for me. It was a good reminder for me. So we had to talk about that. And I was like, okay, well, I can spend another couple of days and change the system how you want it to be changed. But is this how you see this system per- performing these functions in the year? Is, it, or is this going to be the same? And she's like, probably not. I have a couple ideas I want to try out. And I was like, okay. Yeah. As someone who's the idea person, like you kind of forget to, it's very easy to forget to transmit those <laughs> ideas. Yeah. You yeah. just have this expectation in your head, like, oh yeah, this is the way it's going to be. And if you don't actually tell somebody, uh, so that was actually a really, really good call. I never would have thought to phrase it like that. Mm-hmm. But like, if you just ask someone, uh, is this what you want? They say yes. But you, But if you say, is this what you're going to want? Yep, it's subtly different, and actually, just it just triggers uh triggers just the right the right things that to get actually what you want out of the person. That's really interesting. Yeah. So if I rewind a little bit, um, we had a store come on, and we were charging them a certain rate because we sold them on a second store like a year ago or something like that. Because we had this feature planned, it was just not urgent enough and important enough to to have to be done right now. 
Um, so, you know, that's why it was happening now is because now we have more demand for it. So that's, that's why it was slated for to being done now. And, um, so yeah, so they, they come on and again, it was Scott and I kind of going through the process and getting their store on the store owner didn't do it by themselves. So, uh, you know, we, we, we have it set up so that way a company only gets charged once per month. Uh, so if they have two stores, they don't get, there's not two separate billing cycles. And so that means that when you add a second store, it's prorated. So you're not charged right away. You're just charged a different amount or a higher amount next time your, in, your invoice comes up, right? Sure. Uh, and so, so basically my workaround for them selling different stores over the past year at different rates was, let's just make a Stripe coupon that lasts forever. And when we create the second store, since they're not charged immediately, we can just go into Stripe and apply the coupon to that account to match whatever they were sold on. And so the solution became writing zero code and instead doing a more low-fi, even though it's still using technology, doing like a more or like a less uh, intense of a thing. It's an extra step for either Scott or I, but it takes two minutes. Yeah. And it works and it's flexible. So yeah, that's that's kind of the key to all these payment things is like there's or even just any kind of account management or registration or subscription management stuff, it's always got to be flexible. There's always exceptions, you know? Yep, yep. And But that's something that I didn't ever think about when I started planning the feature. I literally had not thought about that. Yeah. It's almost like the exceptional case becomes the normal case. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, yeah, with RHR, we have like, yeah, there's plans, but like really it's kind of loosely tied together. So like, Sometimes a user wants to make an account. Sometimes we want to make an account for a user. Sometimes, and those are different processes because, like, you want to give the user special permissions. Some people are owners. Some people are quote unquote friends and family plans. So, like, we don't charge them at all. Like, us, like our admin accounts, for example, right? Like, we don't even have subscriptions, but we still have permissions on everything. And, like, yeah, all these weird edge cases are like, oh, we're going to bring on uh, this user, but we want to give them, or like, we have like a, a What's it called? Like students, like student discounts or like a um a youth program. So like youths get like a certain number of hours free per month. And like anyway, yeah, there's there's all kinds of stuff you can't anticipate. Yeah, it's it's stuff that I never would have thought about. And it makes sense. Well, I mean it makes sense to do it that way because if you're a business, the goal is to make money. And if you're not profitable yet, you need to make money any way you can. Yeah. So if you need to change numbers, why you should be able to do that. You shouldn't be coded into a, a brittle setup. Uh, and it was interesting because uh, we had another call today and sometimes the calls can, uh, we do like a weekly kind of stand up and sometimes the stand ups turn into like feature request hour, uh, which is what it is. That's <laughs> not a stand up, but it is what it is. And anyway, uh, so Paul mentioned something to me in the in the call because uh, we take notes uh, with each other and we'll add trailer cards as the call is going if we have to remember stuff. And so I started reading this book last night called Clean Architecture. Uh, a Craftsman's Guide to Software Structure and Design First Edition. Ooh, it sounds fancy, right? I want to read. I've been trying to read more books, and I, that's the only way I can learn, right? I go to college, so I got to read books. And um, it was the first, like one of the first chapters. the The title w- was um, "A Tale of Two Values," and basically, the introduction to the chapter says something like every software system is going to provide different value or like it's going to provide two different values to the stakeholders, behavior and structure. And then it says software developers are responsible for ensuring that both these values remain high. Unfortunately, they often focus on one to the exclusion of the other, 
Even more unfortunately, they often focus on lesser of the two values, leaving the software system eventually valueless. So uh, it talks about behavior being like the features of the application and the specifications. So when you're talking to your boss, stakeholders, whoever, there's usually like an outline of a feature. Here's how it's supposed to work. And here's how the edge cases are supposed to work, right? User stories, right? Isn't like an agile kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That that seems to be like the main focus of things, right? It even says here that many programmers believe that this is the entirety of their job. <laughs> they believe their job is to make the machine implement the requirements and to fix any bugs. Sure. And so from the outside, that seems like the logical thing. Like just just make the make the black box do the thing, right? That's that's a behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And in I think the one of the first chapters, the author talks about how he's been like to programming heaven where things are great and easy to change and programming hell where the it's like the thing only works because of sheer human will and someone sitting in front of a computer for hundreds of hours. It's a testament to man's arrogance. Yeah. So so the first the first value that uh, an app provides to stakeholder is the feature set because that's what people pay for. They pay for, oh, your thing does this. That's worth this much money to me. I'll pay for it and use it. Right. That's that's the app. That's their value proposition. That's a value proposition. Yeah. And the author says that the second um, piece of value that a software system is supposed to provide is through the architecture. Uh, and and so he kind of describes like, well, you have hardware and you have software and software is called soft software because it's soft. It's supposed to be easy to change. It's supposed to be easy to use software to manipulate a computer or a machine into doing what you want it to do, right? And uh, he says from the stakeholders hold of view, they're simply providing a stream of changes of roughly similar scope. From a developer's point of view, the stakeholders are giving them a stream of jigsaw puzzle pieces that they must fit together. And each puzzle is is ever increasing in complexity, <laughs> which is how my job feels a lot, right? Sure. So it's like from the, from the boss's point of view, it's like, oh, I'm just giving, here's how this should work and here's how that should work. And here's my vision for this piece. And the programmers are like, oh, I have to put the puzzle together. This piece has to fit here just right. And this piece has to fit there just right. It's like you ever hear those arguments where uh, uh, some game or some piece of software has like a, a very obvious bug and, you know, the, some armchair developer in the comments is like, oh, they just need to do this or they just need to change this or they just need to, you know, X, Y, Z mm-hmm. without any, you know, knowledge of the, the inner workings or why things are the way they are, how this bug could have come about. Like it's kind of a, it's kind of an X, Y problem in the sense that like, well, yeah, obviously you need to change the behavior, but like assuming about how that's done is, is completely pointless exercise basically. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I always cringe a little bit when I read, uh, in documentation or I see words like simply just Oh, you know, yeah, I'm guilty of that. Like, <laughs> just just pu- putting those own own uh, assumptions on yourself about how long or how difficult things are, you know, going to be right. Which yeah. which was funny because Scott was telling me today that uh, so people have sometimes a hard time filling out a form on the internet, but when he sends them a piece of paper in PDF form, they'll use a PDF app to fill in the PDF and send him a new one. And he was like, "That's arguably more difficult than." Typing in text inputs, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> interesting. It's I don't know. I thought that was interesting, but um, it's it's apples and oranges to everybody. It's all it's all different. Someone might be intimidated by a website, but if they work with PDFs all the time, they're very comfortable with manipulating PDF, right? Sure. Uh, but the person writing documentation is obviously familiar with the app, and so I could say something like, "Oh, just simply fill out this form," where the person's like, "Wow, this is intimidating," you know? 
that yeah it's yeah yeah so uh, it is a lot of times like people say like oh it, this feature shouldn't be that difficult and then the programmer sees like a thousand a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle that's a single color <laughs> right that that's a very that's what my job feels like a lot i guess but um yeah, so we have the two values, right? Behavior, the features, how it works, the value proposition, the architecture. Um, can, can, is it moldable? Is it changeable? How is this thing built, right? Because that's that's important too. Um, and so at the end of the chapter, it, it goes into like, which is the greater value? Is it function or is it architecture? Which is more important? Which provides more money to the company, basically? Is this a test? <laughs> Are you asking me what I think? Well, uh, yeah, what do you think? It's a good question. Put me on the spot. I put myself on the spot. Mm. Your business is not your code. Your business is your business. And the code is just a means to the end. So therefore, I think that the behavior of your code is more important than your business because uh, the underlying implementation, while yes, it can be harder, or easier to change or could be performant or not performant, if it's providing value to someone and they're giving you money, that's all that matters because that's what makes that business sustainable. If it's if it's not making money, but it's the most beautiful, pure, functional, performant application in the world, doesn't matter. It just it just doesn't matter. And like open source is like a whole other thing. But as far as like providing value, running a business, uh, I think that that the behavior of that thing is more important than the structure of it. Now that being said, obviously the two things are conflated because at some point it becomes so needlessly complex that you spend more time fixing it than you do providing value. And therefore the value of the thing goes down. Like you're, you're spending more time and money trying to improve it than you are actually making money. And so it's kind of like an economics, it's like a, it's an optimization problem, right? Yeah. So obviously the two things are not, don't exist in a vacuum, but on the whole, I think everything pivots off of the behavior of the system. That's my answer. I'm sticking to it. Oh God, flaming Elmo. <laughs> I'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> That's how I feel sometimes after after our stand-up call. Yeah, it's just Elmo standing still with his arms up and he's just on fire. It's like the uh the, the dog that's drinking the coffee. It's just this is fine. Yep, yep. Uh so I I like your answer. I think it's good. I don't think that there's a black and white answer. So you made a couple of good points. Like if your system is very beautifully designed but no one pays for it, then it's not successful. And if your your system can be a pile of crap, well, I don't want to like fire shots at Steam, but that's like the case point. Like <laughs> that's like the textbook example, right? Like they're running that jQuery soup and they generate millions of dollars in revenue. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I mean, that's the example that I've heard a lot. People always point like, oh, uh, you don't have to have this crazy good system to make money because Steam makes a lot of money and their store is like just a, a hot mess. Is is what I've been told. Um, sorry, Steam. If you, if anyone at Steam listens to this, so I'm, I'm sorry. That's okay. I used Steam like back in the, you know, Counter-Strike 1.4, 1.6 days. Mm-hmm. And like for a good, I don't know, five years, uh, chat and friends list just did not work. Like, right. Just you launched the window and just nothing happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's what I mean. And they're, they're still, there's, they make, they're, they're around, they're still around. Hand you know? over fist. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very good point that you make. So in the book, uh, he talks about, or the question was, like, which of these provides greater value, right? Is it going to be the functionality? Is it going to be the behavior of the application? Or is it the architecture? And I'll just read a couple of parts of it here. And he says, if you ask the business managers, they'll often say that it's more important for the software system to work. Developers, in turn, often go along with this attitude. 
but it's the wrong attitude. I can prove that it is wrong with a simple logical tool of examining the extremes. And here we go. All right. Um, if you give me a program that works perfectly, but is impossible to change, then it won't work when the requirements change and I won't be able to make it work. Therefore, the program will become useless. But if you give me a program that does not work, but is easy to change, then I can make it work and keep it working as requirements change. Therefore, the, pro- the program will remain continually useful. But as systems become more complex, like as you make changes, they necessarily become more complex and like, right. it therefore becomes harder to change. So it's not like a constant, like a line, like a program is this easy to change. It's, it's always a moving target. Yeah, it's kind of like, like, like I said, it's a, I don't feel like it's a black and white answer, but the point is, the point was very interesting to me. Um, if you give me a program that works perfectly right now, but it's hard to change, then it won't work. Then it won't be correct later. Right. And if you give me a program that's not correct now, but it is easy to change, it will be correct later because I can change it. I thought that was interesting because okay, when, um, yeah, so like when I'm talking with my bosses and people that are like customers that are sending in ideas, I have to kind of think about this like, okay, is it worth me making a big project out of this to do things correctly or is is there like a stop is a stopgap fine for example um and in the span of one week i've had situations where we've gone with the stopgap i.e the 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 coupons (laughs) and another system where i don't think it's the best uh idea to go with the stopgap so uh practically what that means is that uh so now a company can have multiple stores so what what about their inventory do they have to, a lot of stores sell the same products, but not necessarily all the same products. So do they have to sign in or does our team have to sign in and duplicate all these products? Do do I, do I have like some sort of sync tool that runs in the background and automatically syncs products between stores for the same company? Uh, do I add some settings for them to control that? That feels kind of weird, right? To just have a thing that duplicates content. Uh, that would certainly be a way to solve the problem. And it's a little bit less work than the correct way to solve the problem right uh but i it's it's it i don't think it's the right solution to choose and the right solution here i think is to move the inventory management to a company level and treat stores more like a location at that point so if you add a product to a company in the product form you can say this belongs at store a and b but not c right and at store a the inventory is 10 and store b the inventory is five right that's the correct way to do it but that that involves more changes is going to take me longer. Well, it's interesting because just going back a little bit, because like easy to change is like just one sort of dimension on this Mm -hmm. thing, Mm -hmm. because in order to make software easy to change, it has to necessarily has to be complex in the sense that it has to have lots of abstractions, right? Yeah. Because abstractions are what make your code do different things. So like, okay, just like, uh, think of the most easiest to change thing in computer science. Like what what's what's the what's the most abstract thing you can picture? And like like I can think of like I don't know instruction code or like CPU code, right? Like literally binary instructions. Like that's the ultimate quote unquote application, right? Right. It's uh, it's easy to change. It can literally do anything that a computer can do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. And then obviously there's abstractions on top of that, right? Uh, but they come with restrictions in the sense that, oh, it's harder to change. Like in Elixir, we don't have access to memory pointers. So like if we want to allocate and deallocate something or manually, well, manually garbage collecting is a bad example, but like manually free up memory or manually allocate or like do th- things with lower level languages, 
we, we trade that off. We trade off the abstractions of the system for the complexity that we have to implement. So, yeah. And that, that's true of an application itself as well. It's like you, your code is your application and it does a certain thing. If, if, if you abstract it away so much that it just becomes like a database, like just use the database. <laughs> so anyway, I still have some issues with the argument, but I don't want to sure, get yeah. too far off because I want to hear, we've been talking a little bit about this inventory thing. So uh, you want me to talk about that? I mean, do we want to, do you want to go into it now? Again. So you've got sto- stores, you've got locations, mm-hmm. you've got um, sort of items, but the items belong to just individual locations, right? Yeah, individual stores right now. Right. And so like you said, you want to be able to have items that can belong to multiple stores and also like have quantities, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, yeah, you've, you've, you've got to do a, um, a full you know, inventory system. Those haven't been done before. Yep. <laughs> right. Well, okay, so here's here's another piece. Or I think this fits really well into what we were just talking about. Like, what's the value? Is it more valuable to have the thing technically work or have it easier to change? And it's in, like, right, because you, you, you talked about it and you're like, well, it's not necessarily true because here's an example of where it might not be true. Uh, you, can, you can blow money, waste all your money, abstracting things away to make it easy to change, right? So this is why, anyway, this is why I brought it up. So the first example was coupons. And yeah, I could have extracted things away, and, but the coupons work great and it's not causing a problem down the road for me. Now I, I described one possible solution for the inventory stuff would be having a sync tool that um, mod of like, it just keeps track of which products are quote unquote duplicates of each other and, and keeps them in sync. Uh, but knowing that POS is the goal because that's ultimate vendor lock-in, right? If we have stores with our POS system in then store, then it's hard for them to leave. And I don't mean that in a evil genius laugh kind of way. I mean, like, obviously, we'd want to provide them value. That's why we'd want them to purchase it in the first place. But why do you have to let Elmo on fire? Right, evil genius. He's in your lair yeah. in a cage. Yeah, yeah. So like, that's what I'm thinking about. Is okay down the road. I'm thinking about POS system. We actually got we got accepted into the Stripe terminal beta, which freaked me out because what's funny was it's so cool. We were talking about POS systems like last month. And Paul said to me in a side conversation, I think this is going to come faster than either of us expect. And then like a couple of weeks later, we're accepted into a beta and Stripe is like making this possible. And we're like, oh no. Stripe is like so on top of this stuff. They've, they're oh, just, no. they're killing it. So yeah, yeah, for those who aren't familiar, Stripe Terminal, it's a, as far as I know, it just says the programmable point of sale. It's literally just like, like their answer to Square, I guess. But like, mm-hmm. but like way more than that in the sense that it's a physical handheld like dedicated device with a card swiper and a chip thing and Apple pay. It looks like in Google pay built right in. Like it's got everything, but apparently what do you customize? Like the interface or the, I don't even know. Yeah. So they give you an SDK, they give you a JavaScript SDK. And so yeah, you can make your own custom interface and this thing, like it's crazy, but it's for a physical device. It's not like a phone with a reader on. It's a physical, right. It's a physical, they work with like Verifone. They work with a few different um, vendors, basically, that make really popular devices for this. This is so cool. They just give you the SDK to expose the reader to your app, and then they give you... So obviously, the the device, you know, you swipe a card, and it does, like, the token stuff. So it just gives you the ability to do this in person, and so you can develop your own POS system. So for us, most of our stores have problems with inventory already. They're already having to... 
Uh, so one of our one of our stores is using Shopify plus a third party for inventory, and they say it's a nightmare. They have they had to hire full time employees just to manage this thing. Yeah, and it's been they said multiple months, and they're still not live with it. You know what I mean? So there's a huge there's a huge uh, need there. I mean, you hear a customer say that that means that hey, we should be the ones to solve this problem for them and make their lives easier because it's stressful. If one customer is saying that, you know they're all thinking it. Oh, yeah. I mean, our owner owns furniture stores. So she not only is the owner of Design Collective, she uses Design Collective as a customer. Oh, really? See, I didn't even yeah. know that. Like, that's yeah. that's actually awesome. <laughs> so we're, do- we're dog fooding it, yeah. And so... That's great. Yeah, so anyway, like, this, this Stripe terminal gives us the ability to... We use Stripe Connect as a marketplace, you know, so we're already using Stripe and this terminal SDK out of the box will just work with our, our setup, Stripe connect and everything. So we can realistically offer, uh, it scares me to say this. And this is what I was talking about last episode where I was saying like, I was trying to keep stuff secret. This is it. Oh, okay. A POS system, uh, for our customers. I mean, how crazy to be as you, Sean, walk into a furniture store and buy an Ottoman, I don't know. That's the most stereotypical piece of furniture I could picture buying at a furniture store. Sure. And like the guy pulls up the little handheld thing and it has like your interface on it in your inventory. Well, I mean, the summer I was in San Clemente and I was drinking a coffee and looked across the street and there was a store that uses our platform just sitting there. (laughs) No way. Sitting there there on the ground like a building does. Um, It was super weird. I went to train jujitsu and like down the street where I was like, hey, I know that company name. They they are a subscriber of Design Collective. (laughs) That's wild. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty weird. It would be cool. But uh yeah, so so in thinking about like value proposition, yeah, it would be it'd be quicker for me to just do the sync tool and be done with it. Because that does that means that like nothing has to change. So like adding to cart doesn't change. I would have to almost change no UI. It's purely a back end thing. But it's the wrong thing to do. So it would technically cost us less money because it ta- it will take less time for me to implement. Maybe not a whole lot less time. Because it's it's not like trivial, so complicated, but it will take us less time. So technically, it's the more cost-effective option, right? Right, but you also know this other thing's coming, and eventually you're just gonna end up undoing it. I know that right. POS is coming, and when POS happens, I know that inventory will need to be on the company level because we will need to manage individual stock levels at different places. So store A might have ten of these on the floor, or they might have none on the floor. And they might order it from the manufacturer when you place an order. So there's lead time on it. And store B might have it in stock though, you know? So our system has to be able to reflect that. And with the system I'm proposing, even though it might take me a week longer or two weeks longer, it's in the long run more cost effective because if I were to do this the shorter, cheaper version first, I would have to undo it later. And I would have to clean up the per, the duplicate products would be a few thousand right. that it would create. So what's interesting is that what made your application, quote unquote, easier to change in this case is not necessarily a technical thing. It was just literally you knew what was coming. Yeah. Right. You asked the question or you know what's coming down the pipe and that therefore informs your decisions like today about what you're going to change. And by spending less time changing things, you're making it easier to change by definition, right? Yep. So like it's that's really interesting that just a just a process thing, just having a having a roadmap, how much that has that has helped you uh just make that decision. So what's even more interesting is I know for a fact that most stores won't care about this if it rolls out. 
What do you mean? Why, why wouldn't they? In terms of like moving inventory to the company because they don't manage it themselves directly. Oh, uh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. Most of them pay us to do it for them because we have an inventory team. Oh, I get it. They're already paying you. They're not paying someone else. They're not even going to see this. Okay. Yeah. When we, when we get to down the end game down the road, they will. But the, the work I do right now, they're not going to care about. So it's almost purely an architectural change because the feature will, it will look almost identical. You click manage inventory and instead of going to a store admin, you go to a company admin and the UI looks the same. There's just an extra field in the product form where you can select a location that the product belongs to. I see. I mean, yeah. I guess I could see it becoming more complicated than that because like when somebody physically swipes and buys something on the POS or on the app, like do you keep track of quantities? Like do you mark something as sold and then it disappears or do they have to manually do that? Like, uh, It's automated. It is automated. Okay. Mm-hmm. They have quantities on items already, that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, so is that all there is to it? Is it just just changing the the relation in the database, basically, or is there there's got to no. be more to it than that? Yeah, there's more to it than that. We can. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we can. We can. Yeah. I haven't written all of it down. It's in my brain right now. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's it's good. This isn't. I don't need the whole the whole spec here. Maybe you can link to your Google Doc where you uh, do the whole oh, yeah. full specification. That. That'd be great. Put that in the show notes. I'll do that. I'll put the RFC in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Only if it's in uh, fixed width font and uh, paid breaks every, you know, 120 lines. I mean, in terms of database changes, there will be a new uh, join table, uh, product stores. Right. Uh, or store product. Product stores would be alphabetical. Rails, yeah, Rails did it alphabetically. I, yeah, yeah. But store products make sense too. I, anyway, um, so there'll be another join table. Products will be assigned to a company instead of directly to a store. Shopping cart's going to be interesting because... Maybe we just accept a store ID parameter when something's added to a cart. Or company ID, because you could ship it from anywhere, right? Like, if, what if it's in stock at one store, but not in the other? Exactly. We'd have to make sure that when you purchase it from that location, that it's recorded. Or like, when you add to your cart from a certain location, that it's recorded is from that location, because that's where, like, shipping is calculated and all that stuff. And like you said... But, like, as an end user, I don't care where it comes from. Like, if it's shipped, I just want it to show up. Right. But, but I mean, like... uh for like receipt purposes for stores and stuff like that, locations still do matter. Right. So you have to figure it out. For stock levels. I mean, so we can do things like if something's sold out or like say we can take a product card and we can say this is available in two locations and just show you the uh, the store on the store card that's closest to you, for example. Or if you land on a permalink, a product permalink page and there's a sibling store that's 20 miles closer to you, we can say, hey, this place is it's available elsewhere and it's, it's closer, you know? So let's see now, now I'm picturing, now I'm picturing like a store owner or company owner being like, Hey, I searched this, this product and, uh, I want it to ship from this store, not from that store. Cause this is our flagship store or it has more quantity or, uh, it's cheaper or we have more, you know, prioritizing one store over another. Like, sure. I don't know. Just thinking out loud. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like stuff like that comes up. So it's, you know, on the tin, you're like, oh, I have to make inventory, you know, managed by companies and then locations are basically the stores that are the products assigned to. So instead of having a foreign key ID on a product table, you'll just have a join table. That's like the crux of it, but it affects so many more things and situations and edge cases that come up that you have to think about. Whereas simply just building a sync tool, I don't think about that stuff, but I will have to eventually anyway, so... But yeah, it's interesting, right? Like I'm reading this book and it's presented to me in a black and white case, but it's 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 not really. It 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 depends. You know, it depends. So, 
That's why you get the pay the big bucks. Yeah, maybe. Anyhow, yeah, it's an interesting book. I'm gonna keep reading it. Uh, I would love to keep talking more about it. So, I mean, we're get, we're getting to that point now. We got to shut. We got to shut it down. Uh, I need to get another round of coffee and work out. You're all worried. You're all worried. You're like, I don't have anything to talk about. We're gonna talk about your thing. You did this to me. <laughs> no, it's yeah. It's I've been doing some cool stuff with Packer and new Phoenix app, uh, reneging on some of my stuff from a couple weeks ago, but, uh, we can get more into that next week. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that cause you have it in, in the notes for this episode and I wanted to ask you questions and obviously I saw what you did cause you sent me screenshots and I thought it was cool, but. Well, uh, you're just gonna have to wait. Oh, I see. Do we just clickbait them into the next episode? Ear, ear bait them? I don't know. How I-, I clickbait you into coming back to record with me next week. I don't, I don't care about them. I just, I just want you to come back. Uh, no, but really. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Um, yeah, if anyone has ever built an inventory management system, please, please send me a tweet. Don't at me. If anyone has experience in this area, please, please send me a tweet. We always love your feedback at Sean about inventory management systems and tell him. Please. Tell him. Tell us which you believe is more important, the uh, the behavior of a system or the structure of the system, because I uh, I probably hit some nerves there. So I'm curious to see what you guys think. You can at the show, DNC show on Twitter. You can at Sean, Sean Washbot, or you can at me directly, Shruckwell. It's S-C-H for you guys who can't spell, <laughs> which is everyone. Don't worry about it. Don't take it personally. I'm sorry. It's my fault that my name is this way. Uh, well, whenever I type it, I type Shockwell for whatever reason. I don't know why. Can't help it. I Maybe I should make a snippet to autocorrect Shockwell to Shrockwell. Put that in your... Uh, Alfred. Yeah, I'll put it in my Alfred. Uh, yeah, show notes are available at dnc.show or spec.fm or in GitHub as well. But go to dnc.show. Yeah, they're also in spectrum.chat, man. So you got four places. There's no excuses. To check the show notes out. To see, to see the gif of Elmo burning alive. Yeah, you go for the go for the Elmo gif and stay for the, um, the link to books. I don't know. Thanks to Spec for having us, as always. And if you haven't checked out any of the shows on the network, they have other great shows like Design Details, which is really good. It's I think it's one of the first podcasts I actually started listening to back in the day, and I really enjoyed it. And it gives me a developer a pretty different. In, it's like a, it's like insight into a different world that I don't really hang out in. So I feel like it's like going to a show for a genre that you don't listen to, and you just kind of stand in the back. That's what it is. It's really it's really interesting. Listen, um, they got shows like Fragmented, which is Android developer podcast, there's Swift Unwrapped, a monthly show about the latest news from the Swift world. You think Swift Swift changes usually quicker than that, but yeah, it's like on pace with JavaScript these days, <laughs> for sure. And as always, uh, this week's episode does not compute was edited by Mikhail Delport and produced by Sarah Jackson. Good talk, man, and uh, I'll uh, leave you hanging until next week. I'm gonna go read this book. See ya. All right, see ya.